You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. So, um, welcome to the continuing celebration of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's 100th birthday. We're winding it down. But uh, still one more event tomorrow night. We have uh, Giada Diana, who's a filmmaker, is going to be down at the Knessa Gallery. We're going to have a little screening uh, at 7 o'clock of her film and also uh, going to be in conversation with her. Um, and I think the uh, show over at the um, Rena Branson Gallery is still running for a short while. So I'd say catch it if you're still interested. It's some wonderful new artwork and some old stuff. And uh, just to see Lawrence's work kind of the variety of his work is it would be really I think worth your, worth the candle. So um, you know what celebration would be complete without uh, mentioning the Howell trial? Uh, it's so important to us both as a bookstore and a publisher. It's really part of our legacy, and uh, I feel that you know the tonight's guests Ronald Collins and David Scover have done such a beautiful job in sort of capturing some nuances of the trial. Um, you know, we were the guinea pigs, and a lot of people don't realize the risk that Ferlinghetti took um, when they decided to publish this book and then, and also, you know, go head to head with the court system. And uh, we were very, very fortunate that the ACLU took us on. Um, and so on, the rest is history, and you'll hear more about the details in a little bit, but I wanted to bring somebody out who is also a publisher here in the Bay Area. Um, he is the publisher of Heyday Books. Malcolm Margolin is also an activist and someone who's very, very dear to us and uh, I think has quite a bit to say about Lawrence. And uh, would you come up for a moment? Malcolm, welcome. Thanks. So I w I'd like to talk about Lawrence as a bookseller. And he's, he, we know him as a poet. We know him as a publisher. We know him as an activist. We know him as a traveler. We know him for his journals. But as a bookseller, I think he was extraordinary. And I, th and I think for, for me, I, I, so I grew up in Boston. I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I, I, I resolved to have nothing to do with stores my whole life. I knew people that lived in stores. They lived in the back of their stores. This, it, was a, it, was, it was kind of slavery. And they'd sit, and I remember my friend Sherman Rosen, his father had a grocery store. He, the father didn't take a vacation in 20 years. He, he sat there for 12 hours a day in the store, a slave to anybody that came in. And I resolved never to get into any, any, any sort of retail. I think bookstores were the worst of them all. Do, do, do people know who Gurdjieff was? So once there's a story that is told of Gurdjieff. He was once once met a friend on the street, and the friend said, "Gurdjieff, guess what?" And Gurdjieff said, "What?" And the friend said, "I'm opening a bookstore." And Gurdjieff said, "Why? What? What, what was it?" Gurdjieff said, "What?" So why would you want to do that? And the friend said, "Because I love books." And Gurdjieff said, "It's like opening a butcher shop because you love animals." <laughs> I, th I think there's something in that. I think that book selling is a, is, is a tedious job. There's invoices. There's returns. There's the endless pettiness of, of selling one book at a time. There's people return stuff. 
and you sit there waiting for someone to come in. There's a goddamn cat in the corner. It's raining, and it, it, for me, it was it was kind of an old lady's thing to do, and and yet when I came to the Bay Area, there was something else going on back then. I came to the Bay Area in '67, and there were some remarkable booksellers here. There was Herfel and Getty, there was Roy Kepler, there was Fred Cody, and these were people that were committed politically. And the whole bookselling industry was an amazing industry. It came from Walport, which was a, which, which was a conscientious objectives camp up in up in Oregon. And um, William Everson was up there, and, and Denny Wiltshire was up there, and Stan Gould, all these old sales reps were up there. And they, so they, they, were, they, were, they were pacifists during the Second World War. They were politically committed. And when, and when they came out, your girlfriends had gotten jobs in bookstores in Berkeley, in, in the Bay Area. So, yeah, so, they, so they needed to find work, and they, and they became sales reps. They, they, they got into the book business. Right? And, and for me, the book business was so politically radical, it was just great. And there was something about what Ferlinghetti did here, the paperback books. It's, 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 it's hard right now to realize what a revolution those paperback books were. That back then, there were people like, um, hey, Tony, who was that person on Maiden Lane? No, it wasn't Rex Rock. There was a bookstore over there that sold only hardcovers. And, and, no, it wasn't Paul Elder. Okay. But there were people, there was a propriety to these bookstores, and there was a, it was a kind of, there was something about them that was so staid, and something about them that was so feeble, and and this whole paperback revolution was great, and it was something that that that, that Getty did, that Fred Cody did, that Kepler's did, and and there was something about it that was just absolutely marvelous. It was a populist movement, and I think that to take something like the like a bookstore and turn it into a revolutionary vehicle was wonderful. And I think that I got, uh, so, so, uh, so, uh, uh, I'm sorry about this. It's 12 years of Parkinson's. But the, um, but I think the Ferlinghetti had the most marvelous sense of, of, of playfulness. He had a sense of courage. He had a sense of daring. He, he, he let things be. He knew, he knew when to let go of things. He knew when not to interfere with things. He gave people their, their rights. And I think that this bookstore is still a miracle to me. It's still, I think it could have been a museum by now. I think it could have sold trinkets. It could have, could have sold cups with Ginsburg's picture on it and stuff like that. Instead, it's still, instead it's still got the best selection of books anywhere. And these people still come here as a living thing. And I think that for me, this bookstore is one of Frodo's great poems. Thank you, Malcolm. So Ronald Collins is the Harold S. Scheffelman Scholar at University of Washington School of Law. David is Frederick C. Tosson, Professor of Law at Seattle University School of Law. They've worked together on numerous books. So the, the big one that we had, I think, didn't we do an event for Trials of Lenny Bruce? I think it did. Yeah. Um, so uh, really, it's a delight to have you both back. Thank you. And for this. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
Well, it's nice to be back in the motherland. And um, uh, whenever David and I speak uh, at an independent bookstore, our message is always the same, whether it's politics and prose in Washington, D.C., Powell's, Elliott Bay, The Strand, what have you. And that is, these places exist if you buy books, right? <laughs> so we'd hope you'd buy a copy of People vs. Fred Getty, but before you leave tonight, invest in this bookstore, and this is how you keep them alive. So um, if you feel like I'm leaning on you, it's because I am. <laughs> uh, it was um, 62 years and two days uh, ago that the story of People vs. Fred Getty began. It's an incredible story. It's one that a lot of people in the literary world don't know, and virtually no one in the law world knows. And it's a story about a poet, about a publisher, about a dissident, uh, and about a bookseller uh, that changed uh, the face of First Amendment law. And more than anything else, it was made possible, not by Allen Ginsberg, who was in Tangier at the time, but by, among others, a man named um, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And in many ways, this man was a special and different kind of man. David? Thanks, Ron. Uh, Lawrence Monsanto Ferlinghetti was, in two words, a, an American maverick. Those are the first two words of our book, American maverick. He was a maverick in so many ways. He devoted his life to perfecting the art of freedom writ large whether as a bookseller, a book publisher, a poet, a painter, a playwright, a social activist, an environmentalist. But a large part of Ferlinghetti's maverick side, and the side that most people don't know, is the way he defended the freedom of the press and the freedom of speech. And that is the story of our book, The People versus Ferlinghetti, that side of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's personality. He did this when very few people were willing to put their lives and their fortunes on the line. And of course, it all centered around a poem. Ron, tell us a little bit about the story of the poem uh, that caused such sensorial stir. So you have to go back to New York City. You have to turn the clock back before Allen Ginsberg comes to San Francisco. You have to go to the time that he was involved with some underworld figures and got busted uh, for a felony. And the way he escaped jail was by uh, taking a sentence in an asylum. And it's in that asylum that he met a man named Carl Morgan, uh, Carl Carl Solomon, excuse me. Um, and it's there that uh, his life begins to change. And of course, the uh, howl is dedicated to Carl Solomon. More about that later. But in any event, um, once he came to the asylum, it became evident that he had a particularly uh, difficult disorder that they had to deal with. He was homosexual. Uh, which in those days was considered to be a psychological disorder. And they thought that the environment where he was in, namely New York City, was not conducive to his mental health. So as a condition of him being released, uh, he had to go to some place that was safe. 
and so they sent him to San Francisco. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, it, it's true. I mean, it's actually true. Um, and um, he comes here, and he starts off working in the area of advertising. He's dating a woman and what have you. But after a while, all of that goes south. Um, and um, he finds his way to a bookstore that had opened in 1953, and he starts visiting it more and more often. And uh, he gets to know Ferlinghetti. Um, he proposed uh, some of his poems to be published. Ferlinghetti took a pass, at least on some of the initial ones, um, but was very interested in Howell. He was still drafting Howell. A lot of people think that the first time Ferlinghetti heard of Howell was at the Sixth Gallery reading. Actually, he'd seen it and talked to Alan a lot of before that time. And so Howell, and we spent what, 500 pages, give or take? We did a book called Mania, and it's, it's basically the backstory of Howell. Uh, Howell is just a remarkable poem when you think of, when you know the backstory, when you know the people. And if you remember Howell, all right, it starts up, who this, who that, who this, who that. And there's 48 who's, and those who's were people he knew, all right? One of them was Bill Canaster. Bill Canaster was a Harvard graduate, uh, but he wanted to live the poet life, and so he kept company of these folks. A lot of them were really pretty crazy people, and so one night in a drunken rage, Bill Canastra uh, is riding the subway, and he sticks the L, and he sticks his head out the uh, window, uh, hits a pillar, and is decapitated. So why am I telling you that depressing story as my wife looks on and says, yeah, why are you telling us that? Uh, and that is because when you understand the backstory of Howell, it takes on new meaning. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti knew and understood the backstory of Howell. And as he heard more and more and more about it, he became increasingly interested. So uh, I thought, if ever you're going to play Howell, and you'll have Allen Ginsberg revisit this bookstore, which he came to in 1954, let's have a few words from Allen Ginsberg reading Howell. This is from a 1959 reading. I like to try to read Howell. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't got time and patience to go through more poetry now. Destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high set up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake light tragedy among the scholars of money and war, who are expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, 
who cowered in unshaven rooms in underwear, burning their money in waste baskets and listening to the terror through the wall, who got busted in their pubic beards returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York, who ate fire. And while all of that was going on, there was a man named Jack Kerouac who declined to read a poem uh, at a place called Six Gallery, which was the place that they were at. It was an old carriage house at the turn of the century that they used to repair carriages, horse carriages, and now it was had dirt floors. And um, it was over on Fillmore Street, and all these poets got together. And uh, in the second half, uh, the moderator was uh, Rex Roth, Kenneth Rex Roth. In the second half, a man came up in a suit, yes, a suit, and a tie, is Allen Ginsberg, and he was reading that. And while he was reading that, Jack Kerouac was going around uh, passing a jug of wine. And as they got to each of the Who stanzas, go, 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 go. And it was a remarkable evening. And at the end, Kenneth Rackroth said to Allen Ginsberg, your name will be remembered. And so Sixth Gallery uh, was was that the beginning or the end of the story? Well, it was the it was the end of um, it was the end of the writing of Howell, except for the latter part. But it was really the beginning of of, of the relationship that Lawrence Ferlinghetti would have with Howell, and that's of course what we wanted to focus on. Now, Ron did say that Lawrence Ferlinghetti was sitting in the back of Sixth Gallery. Uh, and Lawrence had already, as Ron had mentioned, a relationship with with Alan, but um, he didn't appreciate until that night the infectious enthusiasm that Howell would produce in the ears. Uh, and, the, and as, uh, as Lawrence could imagine, eventually, the eyes uh, of the, the listener or reader, um, he witnessed this phenomenon of Alan's reading of Howell. And, and he was very different, by the way, than most of the beats that were there to, to listen to Alan Ginsberg. He really wasn't one of the uh, sex-crazed, uh, drunken, wild um, uh, folks with, with whom Alan uh, hung. He was a married man. He was a serious businessman at the time. He certainly appreciated what the Beats had to offer, but he really didn't consider himself a Beat. He, uh, he would say, I'm a bohemian. And he'd wear his French beret to prove it, right? Um, so when all of uh, Alan's friends went out to Woe's Chinese after the reading, um, Ferlinghetti did not. He and his wife, uh, Kirby, went back uh, to their Chestnut Street apartment. And at this point, I'm just going to read briefly from our book. We're going to have sections occasionally read, so you get a sense of not only Alan's poetry, but our writing. Uh, so, 
What page? All right, you want to follow along. A good student <laughs> already has the source. I'm, I'm reading at the bottom of page 24, <laughs> and, and I do know a good student when I see one, since I'm law professor teaching uh, tomorrow, actually, when I return to Seattle. Um, he said, um, Ferlinghetti was similarly confident, confident about the success of Howell, similarly impressed, though he did not join his friends at Sam Woe's. Rather, he and his wife returned to their top floor apartment at 339 Chestnut Street. Though he had seen the manuscript before this evening, he had never heard Alan's poem, A Howl. Having done so convinced him more than ever that this poem was destined for pocket poem publication. And so, as the story goes, he proceeded straight to his study where he composed a telegram to Ginsburg in the historical shadow of Emerson's celebrated response to Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. The telegram read, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. When do I get the manuscript? Uh, Ron, little did Ferlinghetti know at that time that he'd get more than the manuscript. So what was the something more that came his way upon the publication of Howell? Uh, so just just before I get into that, and David has told me I'm, I'm not supposed to get off track because I do it all the time. So I'm and not. so he's about to do so. <laughs> did, did you notice how obedient this is? This is what this is the student that doesn't get the A from me. Let me just say, <laughs> this is the student that doesn't take that class. <laughs> so True. I, I'll, in fact, you'll appreciate that I, I say that. You're going to thank me later for saying what I'm about to say. <laughs> all right, all right, go ahead. All of us who till the fields of history, and it's said that the dead live on the lips of the living, and all of us who write in history at some point write on the backs of those who've come before us. And we would be less uh, than candid if we didn't say that we owed a great debt to Nancy Peters and Bill Morgan for the book Hollow on Trial. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I do appreciate that. So, That's an extemporaneous remark I will accept. <laughs> okay. All right. So if you don't buy our book, buy Hollow on Trial. It's a, it's a really great book. So, okay, now I'm back on on um, online. So. Um, Fairland Getty had anticipated that there could be problems with Howell because there were some colorful words in it. And so he had uh, checked with the American Civil Liberties Union in the Northern Chapter, and there was a fellow named Lawrence Spicer, uh, a great constitutional lawyer. And the, um, they had agreed uh, to represent, um, uh, if there was any issue that came up, uh, City Lights and Lawrence Fairland Getty and others are free. Uh, and by the way, in 1956 and 1957, this was very, very iffy. You know, it was probably more likely than not that any charge would be upheld uh, and a conviction, conviction sustained. Uh, so, um, uh, and the whole question of, of, of obscenity and what have you was radically different. We're going to say more about that. But in any event, uh, so one thing about Lawrence is that not only is he an incredible poet and activist and what have you, but he's a very street-savvy guy. Right? So not only does he anticipate that there could be problems, not only does he go to the ACLU, but he decides, you know, I better have this book printed abroad. So he does. 
Um, but the publisher, it turns out, had some run-ins with the law. Had published a book called Miscellaneous Man that had been stopped in customs and seized in customs, and that really was a, a quote-unquote obscene book. So the publisher had asterisks. So where all the dirty quote dirty words were there, had asterisks. So um, the book comes through customs, but when the customs agent sees this publisher's name. They seized the books. They didn't even, how? They, they didn't, it was like, I think, 580 copies, something like that. Mm -hmm. They don't even look at it. So really what you have is obscenity by implication, mm -hmm. right? So uh, it comes to the U.S. attorney, and the U.S. attorney says, yeah, this is the problem. This is the problem. Uh, you're busting them for, you're, you want to seize these uh, for dirty words, but there aren't any dirty words. There's just dirty asterisks, which means <laughs> there's dirty words in your mind. Which means we should prosecute you. Well, you know. So that didn't go anywhere. So now the book is in the United States. But he wants the words back in. So then he goes to a U.S. publisher to publish it, which means the customs people can't seize it because they can only do things from another country. So now it looks like he's got the dirty words back in it, and it looks like it's fair sailing. No, no. It turns out there's a prosecutor. Um, do you remember the gentleman's name? Oh, the prosecutor? Yeah. Uh, McPhee. Yes. And uh, he decides that this is obscene, that this will corrupt the youth, right? right? Much like Socrates, remember? It's the trial of Socrates, he's corrupting the youth, well, so modern day. Um, and he decides that they have to do a sting operation, okay? That's not the same prosecutor. Right. Okay. All right. I know. Uh, Hanrahan. It's Hanrahan. Yeah, absolutely. Hanrahan. And there's a photo of Hanrahan, a uh, cartoon rather, from the San Francisco Chronicle. And so they have to do this sting operation. So they send in two undercover agents into this bookstore uh, to buy a magazine and a copy of Hall. Um, and then they go get a warrant and they come back and um, they have warrants for uh, Shag Mararo. Shag Mararo and Berlinghetti. Berlinghetti's in Big Sur uh, reading poetry. Um, so you think, well, why is the clerk busted? He didn't publish it, right? He may not even read it, right? <laughs> well, he's arrested, and something incredible happens. In 1957, when this arrest, and even before the arrest, when the book was seized in customs, and this is why this story is such an incredible First Amendment story with bookseller, book publisher, and yes, the local San Francisco Chronicle. The San Francisco Chronicle comes up and immediately comes to the defense of Berlinghetti City Lights. Um, so, you know, again, at a time when all of this stuff would have been seen as clearly obscene, all right? Well, I'll leave you with this. What does Mr. Ferlinghetti do? He writes in the local newspaper, in effect, bring it on. What's the worst thing that could happen? I can be in jail and read some poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, and copies of Howell find themselves, themselves in, the window of, in the windows of this bookstore. They just don't make them like that anymore. I mean, and meantime, Alan is off in Tangiers, and he's very concerned. But he also says, you know, this, it could all go south, and Lawrence could go to jail, the bookstore could close down, and what have you. But if it didn't, this would really be good for publicity for the book. 
All right. Um, let me give you the background context for uh, uh, of the obscenity law that was governing at the time and why this uh, prosecution of Lawrence Ferlinghetti is so significant. Um, William Brennan, in 1957, just, just months before the, the, uh, the bust, wrote an opinion that was considered to be the beginning of the modern doctrine of obscenity in First Amendment law, Roth versus U.S. Like the Roman god Janus with two faces pointing one to the past, the, the other to the future, this opinion had its two sides. There was a very conservative side to this opinion. Uh, Justice Brennan for the court wrote that obscenity would be unprotected speech because there would be no, there, because it has no socially redeeming value and thus deserves no First Amendment protection. That was the conservative side. On the opposite end was the liberal side, the Roth opinion, where the, where, uh, the court distinguished sexual expression from obscenity and gave a very restrictive definition of what would be unprotected obscenity. The test was a three-part one, that one would have to apply contemporary community standards, that the words or the pictures would have to entice lustful desires in the legal, legal term prurient interest, and then finally, that the, uh, the work, would, uh, taken as a whole, would have no literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. So a very restrictive definition. Um, well, on what side of this constitutional divide would, would, would Howell fall? That was the big question. And what was very important about the prosecution of uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti is that this case, the People versus Ferlinghetti, would be the very first case in the entire United States that would have to interpret and apply this new modern standard of obscenity given in Roth. So there really were no other interpretations to rely on. And this was the very, very first case. Let me, Ron, just let me talk about the three lawyers, and then I'm going to ask you to tell our audience something about the incredible judge who was to uh, adjudicate this case. There were, there were three lawyers. Ron mentioned one. Lawrence Spicer, this this is the gentleman who agreed uh, that the ACLU uh, would defend Ferlinghetti even before um, the uh, U.S. Customs uh, brouhaha happened. Uh, he was the director of the North Cal uh, Northern Chapter, North California Chapter of the ACLU, and at the at the at that very time, he was arguing his own Supreme Court case. Uh, uh, he, uh, it was a it was a uh, loyalty oath case, uh, which, by by the way, which he won 
by, by, uh, with only one dissenter. Uh, so he was busy with his, own, with his own Supreme Court litigation, and yet he took uh, on the responsibility of interviewing and um, prepping the witnesses, the defense witnesses for the case. Uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti had just hired the young 28-year-old um, University of California Law School at both uh, student um, or graduate. He had just hired um, Al Bendick. Al was required, or he was assigned the task of analyzing the constitutional standards and writing the memoranda uh, on the constitutional law that would be eventually given to Judge Howell to help him understand the interstices of the Roth opinion. That turned out to be an extremely important role. Uh, I hope you will, will uh, purchase the book, and when you read it, you will see the degree to which the memorandum of law written by Al Bendick inspired uh, what Judge Horn eventually wrote. So Al Bendick actually became probably in, in the course of things the most important of the three. Um, the third was uh, the lead courtroom lawyer, Jake Ehrlich, and since words, my own words, cannot possibly match our description of him in the book. I have to read. What page? Um, page yes, for my, for my erudite student here, page 54, or anyone else who has the book, page 54, but I'm going to be skipping to 55, so you'll have to follow along very carefully, sir. Uh, Jacob Wilburn Ehrlich was the final member of the team. He took the lead both at the trial and in the limelight. Ehrlich never plead guilty, or the master, as he was popularly known, was a San Francisco lawyer with a big ego and a bigger national reputation. In July of 1948, for example, he defended condemned murderer Carl Chessman for stalling his execution in an appeal from death row, a case that drew international attention. Um, his trademark attire, expensive, custom-tailored suits draped over well-polished cowboy boots. And then there were his legendary cufflinks, some valued at more than $25,000, and consider this is in 1957. One of his favorite sayings spoke volumes on his sartorial tastes. A man can always be underdressed, but never overdressed. Little wonder, then, that he could command $1,000 per minute for a 15-minute court appearance for one of his well-heeled clients. Even the less fortunate among them were not spared his astounding bills. When I defend a man in a capital case, he often quipped, my fee is everything he owns. The way I have it got figured, if I win him his freedom, 
it was all worth it. And if I don't, he won't need it anyway. <laughs> Ron, tell us about Judge Clayton Horn. Uh, I'm going off track again. Something <laughs> occurred to me. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of um, the name Al Bindick. And <clears throat> if my voice cracks a bit, it's because he was a good friend of ours. Uh, he was also the lawyer for Lenny Bruce, uh, and he went on to be the lawyer for Fantasy Records. And to the extent that I can take a liberty here, I think it would be uh, a quite a nice touch if this bookstore uh, had some poetry, annual poetry readings, the Bendick readings. I know it meant a lot to him. So, a plug <laughs> for Al Bendick. He was a remarkable attorney. And I, I do say, consistent with what David said, if you take Bendick out of the equation, I don't know that Judge Horn's opinion would have gone the way it did. But before I have um, David read a couple of passages uh, about uh, a sentence that Judge Horn would render in this case, a little t tell you a little bit about it. To show you how conservative this town was in 1957, the ACLU had decided they didn't want to take a chance with a jury trial. The beats were personas non grata here, all right? So you don't want to get a jury trial. That's like the best way to get convicted. So they took a bench trial, also known as a judge trial, all right? And who do they get? They get Judge Horn, the same judge that would be presiding over the Lenny Bruce trial, with Al Bendick, also the attorney in that case, and he won that case. Well, one little problem about Judge Horn. He was a Sunday school teacher, all right? He was a man of God, all right? Um, and he didn't take kindly uh, to people who traded in colorful language and led bohemian lives and uh, violated every sexual moray and what have you. There is known to man and woman and everything else. So going in, if you knew anything about uh, Judge Horn, you think, whoa, this is a train wreck. Um, and there'd be good reason to... And he'd been criticized by the San Francisco Chronicle earlier about some of his opinions or some of his rulings. So it turned out that five women came to his court and they were charged with shoplifting. And it didn't take long for him to find them guilty. And he throws the book at them. You want to tell them a little bit about that sentence? All right. I'm going to read again because uh, this is a very colorful passage uh, in our book about Judge Horn. The five convicted women were confined by sentence for 219 minutes in a local theater for a court-ordered movie viewing of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> the cinematic sentence did not end with the ladies watching Cecil B. DeMille's epic film starring Char Charlton Heston as Moses, Yul Brenner as Pharaoh Ramses, and Ann Baxter as Nefertiti. They had to put pen to paper and discuss in essay form the moral lessons to be drawn from this movie. The judge's sentence drew hard, harsh criticisms from the editorial page of the San Francisco Chronicle. I quote, Municipal Judge Clayton Horn, Horn's freewheeling excursion into movie reviewing and belle lettre 
in weighing penalties for five petty shoplifters fills us with wonder and no little trepidation. Worse still, that lesson in morality, the editors complained, required the five misdemeanors to sit through a film filled with, quote, violence, lust, <laughs> sex, orgies, unquote. Although the editorial was a derisive, oh, alongside the editorial, was a derisive cartoon of Horn, clad as Moses, in robe and sandals, holding a graven tablet that declared, Thou shalt not miss the Ten Commandments, <laughs> Judge Clayton Horn. So this, this was our colorful judge. Uh, Ron, why don't you tell us the ways in which the verdict was a very special one? Okay, by the way, there's a photo of Judge Horn in the handout we gave to you. Uh, so um, <laughs> it took a little doing to uh, dig that up. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, so just to go back to the Supreme Court decision, United States, uh, Roth versus United States, Justice Brennan, he's a brand new justice. This is his first opinion. As David said, there's this distinction between obscenity, which is not protected, and sexual expression, which is sexual. Um, obscenity appeals to prurient interest, or as Lenny Bruce used to say, it makes you horny, right? And he said, you know, whatever my comedy does, it doesn't do that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, by the way, when Lenny Bruce came, when he got Judge Horn and Al Bendick was representing him, Lenny insisted over Al Bendick's objection for a jury trial. Uh, crazy. And the jury would have found him guilty, but for Judge Horn's jury instructions. So now this case, this is the first case after Roth, all right? The distinction in those days between obscenity and indecency, all right, indecency like colorful language would have you, it didn't exist. So prior to Roth, if you wanted to show that something was obscene like Howell, you just present the book, you highlight the words, okay? And they would say, res ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. End of case, right? We've made our case. By the way, the prosecutor didn't want to take any chances. So when he brought the book Howell, he brought it in a brown paper bag. <laughs> and of course, when Never Plead Guilty, Ehrlich was reading, had the poem, he would hold the poem up like this while it was out, you know. So, you know, you had this different thing going on. So you would have thought that at that pinpoint in time, all right, that this was going to be a tough case for the ACLU. Uh, I think that um, uh, uh, Lawrence Weiser has nine witnesses to testify that this book has social redeeming value, that it doesn't appeal to prurient interest, that you have to look at the work taken as a whole, all right? And so that's how the trial is going on. By the way, it's filled, it's filled uh, with uh, beats, all right? Lawrence Ferlinghetti wears a corduroy, a green corduroy uh, jacket and a tie, uh, which would have been, um, and uh, he's there with Shig Mararo, uh, who the charges against him uh, would be dropped, so that doesn't continue, uh, because they hadn't shown that he had any reason to know that any, or intended to sell, quote unquote, obscene literature. So if you thought 
you know, the trial went on, and basically the prosecutor just said, look at the words, that's all you need to do, okay? But as it's going on, in the course of oral arguments, Judge Horn starts to make a few statements thinking, you know what, this isn't enough. I need, to, there's more to this. And he starts listening to the expert witnesses. And of course, all of a sudden, something's happening. More and more public, including national attention, is coming to Howell. And I do say that the best publicity agent that Allen Ginsberg ever had was when Lawrence Ferlinghetti was charged with um, uh, obscene, uh, selling obscene literature because it was a game changer for him. Anyway, the case comes to Judge Horn. He takes a month, a month to decide this case. And what happened, I'm gonna let David tell you about that in a moment, his decision, but it was a remarkable decision. But I have to tell you this, he was a municipal judge. Municipal judges do misdemeanors, dog barking cases, par um, uh, speeding tickets, that sort of thing. They don't deal in constitutional law and First Amendment law, including Supreme Court law that's brand new. They just, they don't trade in that. Moreover, they don't write opinions, right? Because if they write them, there's no place to publish them. They only publish appellate opinions. And he was a muni judge. He wasn't even a superior court judge. I mean, he's like at the bottom. And so something remarkable happens and something remarkable happens thanks first and foremost to that 14-page memorandum that Al Bendick prepared. And that, what happened when uh, Judge uh, Horn, Clayton Horn, rendered his opinion in People versus Ferlinghetti. And um, one of the things that Al Bendick did was give us a typed version of the entire, manuscript, or the entire opinion uh, and so now David is going to tell you a little bit about that opinion. All right, so um, there are cer certain things that Ron already mentioned that I'm going to re-emphasize just because they're so important to understanding the significance of Judge Horn's um, trial, the trial he conducted, and uh, the opinion he wrote. Um, there were really three ways in which Lawrence Ferlinghetti was extremely fortunate in having a judge trial with Clayton Horn. First, over the prosecutor's objections, and the prosecutor did object vociferously, Horn permitted these nine defense experts to testify as to the socially redeeming value of, of Howell. And in that testimony, it became eminently clear that there was no in prurient interest. There were no lustful desires that were going to be that that were going to be uh, uh, um, awakened even by the use of vulgarity that was sexual. Howell was a poem that not only talks openly about homosexuality, but also lambasts capitalism and the military-industrial complex. And it was clear to anyone who really paid attention that Howell might have been seen as controversial or offensive or un-American more than it would be seen as dirty, even though there were vulgar words. Unquestionably, there were vulgar words. But 
the the overarching theme of Howell is an is an overtly political one, and so just you know, given the raw standard, it would be impossible to say that there was no significant political or or, or artistic uh, value to Howell. The second reason in which uh, Ferlinghetti was very fortunate in having Horn is that Horn very carefully studied Al Bendick's Memorandum of Points and Authorities. It's clear from, as I said earlier, from the opinion that in many respects the opinion resonates with those points of authority. And he poured over the wrong opinion. The opinion, the, the um, decision he wrote, the, the judicial opinion he wrote, it makes it clear that he had really done what, what I would call an exegesis, a literary criticism on the opinion and explained the threads of that Roth opinion. And when we talked about the Roth opinion as having two sides, the conservative libertarian side, the decision by Horn completely went with the libertarian side of Roth. And in fact, as I said earlier, not only was this opinion the first to interpret the Roth decision, um, which Justice Brennan had written a few months earlier, but never in the history of Supreme Court obscenity doctrine did the Supreme Court render a decision as speech protective as Judge Horn did. The standards that he wrote for the protection of obscenity I mean, protection, yes, for the protection of works that were perceived to be obscene, right? The, the standards he wrote were never completely adopted by the U.S. Supreme Court itself. So he actually went, in, in many people's eyes, overboard. He was more generous towards freedom of speech and free, the free press. So that is the third way in which... Lawrence Ferlinghetti was very lucky to have Judge Horn. Obviously, with that kind of interpretation, the verdict was not guilty. Um, his learned opinion came to 11 pages in text, and our book is the first to publish that full opinion along with citations that he used in order to support his uh, reasoning. David, um, can I read a passage from it? Please, do it. So, uh, um, by the way, this opinion was good, legally speaking, only in this jurisdiction, nowhere else. It wasn't in San Mateo, it wasn't binding in Los Angeles, it wasn't binding in Bakersfield, and it wasn't binding in any other state. This is a municipal judge. I mean, so what's amazing is Howell was the last time an Amer a poem was criminally prosecuted in the United States. It was the last time. And as, as Howell was sold across the United States, it wasn't prosecuted in any state or county. It was incredible, the, the, the impact that this opinion had um, on, uh, on changing the law. And I'd just like to read you a passage from Judge Horn's opinion. Uh, and we'll be turning to your questions shortly, so stay with us. 
There are a number of words used in Howell that presently considered may be seen as coarse or vulgar in some circles of the community. In other circles, such words are in everyday use. It would be unrealistic to deny these facts, page 114. <laughs> the author of Howell has used those words because he believed that his portrayal required them as being in character, as representing real people. The people state that it is not necessary to use such words and that others would be more palatable, palatable to good taste. The answer is that life is not encased in one formula whereby everyone acts the same or conforms to a particular pattern. No two persons think alike. We are all made from the same mold, but in different patterns. Would there be any freedom of press or freedom of speech if one must reduce his vocabulary to vapid, innocuous euphemism? An author should be real in treating his subject and be allowed to express his thoughts and his ideas in his own words. This is the Sunday school teacher. This is um, Clayton, um, Clayton Horn, Judge Horn. So it ends there. You'd think that the story ends um, in 1957. Now all of a sudden Howell has national, uh, it's getting national attention. Um, but fast forward 50 years. The year is 2007. I don't mean to alarm you, but it's true. To this day, you cannot read Howl on broadcast radio or television. To this day, it is illegal, and you could be fined how much, David, for each word? $325,000 per word. And if, you, and if you repeat the program the next day, it's a million dollars per word. And the FCC, the, the Federal, Federal Communica Communications so Commission there, regulations. So without going to, you may, uh, uh, suffice it to say that there was a case called, uh, that involved George Carlin's seven dirty words in the court and uh, announces the indecency uh, FCC versus Pacifica. And so because of that, uh, it was, although Howell had been read, read on the radio in the 50s and then early in the 60s, um, now it was illegal. You'd have to read it before 8 or after 11. And so Lawrence Ferlinghetti decides in 2007 on the 50th anniversary of Howell to go to Pacifica Radio, and Pacifica Radio he was always a big fan of, and Pacifica Radio from the beginning uh, was a very strong defender of free speech. And he went to them and said, can we play the 1959 um, reading of Howell by Allen Ginsberg, which you heard. And um, they went back and forth and back and forth. And uh, Janet Coleman from there was eager to do it. But the attorneys said, this could kill us. Uh, literally, it could be the end of time. And so they came up with an idea that uh, they were going to read uh, Howell and Lawrence was going to be interviewed and um, they would do it on internet radio because the internet isn't covered. And at the end of that program, uh, and it is available uh, and the transcript of it is in our book, at the end of that program, Lawrence Fellengetti asked if he could read a few words from his poem. And with those few words, David's going to read them and then we're going to turn to you. David? Thank you, Ron. Janet Coleman had asked 
runs from Engedi, what whether Ginsburg would have words over the fact that the FCC prevented this um, this poem from being read over broadcast radio. And he responded, ah, well, I'm sure he would have had lots to say about it. I often lament that he isn't around to say that. Ferlinghetti then asked if he could end by reciting his poem, Pity the Nation. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced. The old poet closed with lines that echoed down the halls of time, back to the words of Walt Whitman. Pity the nation, <laughs> pity the people who allow their rights to erode and their freedom to be washed away. My country tears of the sweet land of liberty. Thank you. Thank you very much. That, that is the end of our presentation because that's literally the end of our book. So we have no more to say in the presentation of the book, but we want you now to exercise your First Amendment rights in a robust, open, and uninhibited way by asking us questions, uh, which we will hope to answer. Yes? So was it a city ordinance that that they were that supposedly was in violation. No, it was a state statute. State, state, statute. state obscenity state. law. But yeah. it was adjudicated in the city. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Because that still seems so. It was a California penal law. So sorry. Well, uh, where, where during the Beatnik era did this take place? Like, where, when did the Beatnik era start, and then uh, when did this place? And then. Well, th this time, this this time period that we're writing about is 55, 56, 57, and then we jumped 50 years later to 2007 to talk about the FCC. Um, so, but just to give you an idea, but it's about 57, Kerouac is, goes on the road, all right, I mean, the book, that is. And um, Allen Ginsberg, while he's over in Tangier, he's editing a manuscript called Naked Lunch. So, the whole beat thing is starting, you know, it's just starting, and all of a sudden it gets two huge shots in the arm that really kind of are cultural game changers. Um, Jack Kerouac's On the Road, which all of the reviews of that book, and there were more than a dozen, all of them were negative, save one in the New York Times. And the one in the New York Times was just off the charts. So On the Road, and then Allen Ginsberg's how, and they gave the beat generation a shot in the arm that really kind of catapulted it in a way uh, that Bill Burroughs and others uh, would use to their advantage. I mean, I accord with anything my co-author says. We are never, never in opposition to each other's uh, to each other's uh, presentations. But I will only add that Ron is right about when the literary movement of the beats happen. In our other book that he mentioned, Mania, we we actually start with the beginning of the beats, and that is Lucian Carr's introduction 
of Allen Ginsberg to uh, all of his friends, including Kerouac, Burroughs, etc. And Lucian and the remarkable murder story uh, of the, the, the killing of, of uh, his erstwhile professor, David Kammerer, on the uh, banks of the Hudson. That's the beginning of our book, Mania. That is the point at which the Beat Generation begins to grow as a as as, as a social phenomenon. It, they become a literary success in the fifties, right around the time of publication of Howell. But the the the, the four story goes all the way back to their times at Columbia University when Alan was a student. By the way, something just occurred to me, and I'm gonna another suggestion for uh, City Lights. So. Um, Lucian's, Lucian Carr's name was in the original few copies of Howell. Lucian Carr, a very close friend, uh, but then got involved in a um, murder trial and kind of changed his life thereafter. And so when Howell came out, he was very worried that his name was listed in the dedication and he asked that it be removed, and it was removed. And maybe it's time to put it back. He's, he's dead. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it would be kind of a nice touch. By the way, before I forget, when um, there was a book called The Annotated Howl that came out in the 90s, and it's the complete story of Howl and the writing of Howl and what have you. And at the time, um, uh, Allen Ginsberg uh, wrote an incredibly touching letter to Larry thanking him and dedicated The Annotated Howl to Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And it was just a beautiful, uh, I mean, if you, I'm sure they have the book here. And uh, you know you're probably thinking, well, how can we spend some money to give to this bookstore? That's another one. Uh, so uh, how on trial, the annotated how, and of course, the people versus Sterling Getty. Ron's suggestion to City Lights to insert uh, Lucian Carr's name back in, though it sounds very provocative, is actually uh, immune from legal punishment because you cannot libel the dead. That's that's why this could be, could be done. After, after Lucian Carr's death. So there's a any, whole, any, any whole new life. Yes. Yes. Do you have any information why the state didn't uh, pursue it? Was it like the spirit of the times kind of on... Pursue what? I'm sorry. Basically, uh, the, 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 the case. Why they didn't appeal it, you mean? Yeah. Oh, appeal it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, first of all, I think they were kind of caught off guard by this opinion. I mean, muni judges don't write opinions. So it would have gone to the Superior Court, it would have gone to the Appellate Division of the Superior Court, then from there it would have gone to the California Court of Appeals, and then from there it would have gone to the California Supreme Court, and there it might have gone up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But uh, they'd gotten... I, I, again, well, but, I, but there's a quick and dirty answer. You can't appeal an acquittal in a criminal trial. You, you, know, the, you can't retry. So, so the, uh, there's, there's no appeal. They, they, well, no, no. That's the quick they, No, they could have appealed the questions of law. Yeah, the questions of law. Yeah. And what's also re remarkable about this, uh, about this case, is that I think the prosecutors were really caught off guard. They didn't expect this opinion, and uh, I can't emphasize enough. There was the the San Francisco Chronicle mm -hmm. time and again was coming to the defense of this bookstore and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And it's really a remarkable story. And this was not a radical newspaper either. I mean, these were people who really believed in freedom of the press 
even though some of their subscribers, this could this opinion could not have sat well with them, this, this verdict. So. Hanrahan was so mocked for for the reasons that he gave for the arrest of Ferlinghetti. It, it, you know, the, the state, I think, was shamefaced about this at, in, in, in the long run. And I believe they realized that this it would not behoove them to try to appeal on the questions of law. Um, I think that Horn did a fabulous job in interpreting the law, if you want to know the fact is. Uh, you mentioned that the uh, foreign publisher censored the first edition. Um, uh, that's Villiers. Yeah. Well, I think then the arrest might have started there. Certainly, they wouldn't have got the books back. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, how, I mean, Clayton Horn is just such an unexpected yet essential persona. If this was tried before a federal judge, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just Fortuna. It's just. It's how it played out. I think if this was tried before any other judge coming down after the Roth opinion, it would take Roth years and years and years to play out. There was times, I think, in the late 50s and early 60s where the Supreme Court was getting as many as nine or ten obscenity cases a term, and, and it just didn't know what to do with it. It took, it took decades, actually, a decade and a half or more, before Roth was kind of played out and, and in a case called Miller versus California came to have new life. So again, Clayton Horn was so far ahead of his time. I I will say this, I think that I mean Ron's completely right that if the if the words were actually in there and there were asterisks, customs would have a much better reason for seizing the book. The the uh, federal prosecutor still would have had to make a decision whether it was worth um, his time to, to um, prosecute Howell. Uh, and and I, I mean, we can't prove the negative. We don't know what, what he would have done in, in, in that circumstance. But I would hope that the federal prosecutor would have been much more sensitive to the free speech doctrines of Roth than Captain Hanrahan of the juvenile department was. It was really his ham, ham-fistedness that started this all off. He was, you know, just so morally offended. He he said, you know, this this isn't fit. This literature isn't fit for children. And of course, the San Francisco Chronicle went to town with that and said, well, you know, if if we have to uh, ban anything that's not fit for children then we should get rid of the Bible, which has plenty of, of passages that are not fit for children. I mean, it, it was, so I don't, I don't know what could, would have happened. I just hope that the federal prosecutor would have been much, much more erudite about this and, and just let it in. If Clayton Horn was ahead of his time, what about Judge Woolsey 20 some years before that? Why, why didn't his decision get more play? Well, the thing is, is that, remember, if, it's, if a decision doesn't come down from the Supreme Court, it's not binding nationally, all right? So you can have all the Woosleys or learned hands. Yeah, this or, was at least a district court or something. No. Not, not a yeah. Right, right. So th- that makes it even, you know. Uh, but the fact is, is there were opinions coming up, kind of renegade opinions in the district, federal district courts and the Court of Appeals. 
but there was for every one of those there was 10 that went the other way and in those days to be charged with obscenity for all practical purposes and by the way novels were being charged not poems but novels certainly movies almost always those lost you know it, it, it in fact it wasn't until I think in the 50s that the Supreme Court decided that movies whether or not they're dirty or clean that movies as a genre are entitled to any protection so it took a long time just to get that far so yeah like I said in those days just to be charged with obscenity as a practical matter unless you got a judge like Woosley or a few others uh, and by the way in Roth Justice Brennan was really rather Machiavellian because what the conservative court wanted remember um, uh, what they wanted in fact Earl Warren was totally uh, uh, upset and uh, uh, a strong uh, uh, opponent of anything he deemed obscene. So that court really demanded a conviction for Roth, for Sam Roth. Brennan understood that. So Roth lost, but the cause of free speech and sexual expression prevailed, and that was kind of his Machiavellian move. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, sir. No, I, I, I think I think it's entirely consistent what he did in the Ten Commandments case and 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 in this in this case. That it's not that he changed his mind. He became much more informed about the obscenity law thanks to Albendic and to his own reading of how. So it's I think he just informed himself. It's not that he changed his mind. Yes. Speaking on that speaking on that topic, it's like you keep referring to this memorandum by Bendix and how right. influential it was. Um, could you read any sort of a sample or passage from the memorandum? Well in well, our book actually actually one of the things we've done and I don't want to tax people here um, is we've compared passages from the memorandum to passages in how I mean, in the uh, uh, in Judge Horn's opinion, and we have, uh, although there was a copy of the opinion in Hull on trial, the one in our copy is the only complete one, and in there we identify passages that Al Bendick, for all practical purposes, the legal analysis, I think a hundred percent came from Bendick. There's a couple of phrases in there that Al used. But some of the most remarkable phrases come from Horn, and you know, and, and and by the way, after this, the guy just rides off, you know, to back where he was, deciding, you know, back to Sunday school. yeah, back to Sunday school and what have you. And the other thing, we, we tried to get more information about Judge Horn. It's hard, but this could not have been well received in his religious community. I mean, this could yeah. not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it, it's all the more all the more remarkable. And so, if you think about the people who took a chance, all right, Lawrence Ferlinghetti took a chance, all right, this judge took a chance. Um, in the meantime, Allen Ginsberg's in Tangier going, boy, this is really going to help sales. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. I get the impression, just from you saying, that the district attorney's office either took a dive in this case or just outgunned uh, with their talent because. It seems to me in 1957, if I can remember when I was a diaper, that uh, 
I'm saying they still the law of the day. I mean, it was banned in Boston, and you had Lady Chatterton's lovely, Lady Chatterton's, you couldn't read it in this country, a lot of other books, but did you get the impression when you were doing your research that the district attorney's office didn't put much resistance and just took a dive in this case? Well, I don't think they took a dive intentionally. I, I, I think, I mean, we addressed the, the attitude of the prosecutor. He fully believed that the vulgarity alone would lead to a conviction. And so when he came in to present his main case, he had the two police policemen who, the undercover agents, testify as to the buying of the book. And, and, he, basic, and he handed the book to Judge Horn and he said, now you'll want to continue this case so you can read the poem yourself. But his, his argument against hearing any defense expert witnesses was that you don't need that, that the, the words speak for themselves. You, your, your Honor, can read, see the vulgarity, and make a decision that, the, that Ferlinghetti is guilty. David, so he yeah. did have to establish a jurisdictional question. Oh, and there was, was some right. question of a, a jurisdictional question. Yeah, it was a very, very funny. Are you going to tell that? I'm going to let you. Oh. This, this is a setup. Th this, is, this is hysterical. I mean, to sh this gives you a sense of how humorless this man was. Um, in, the <laughs> in the beginning of Howell, Alan lists his beat friends in some of their writings. And at the end of the dedication, he says, he says, all of these works were published in heaven. Right? heaven. In heaven, right. And so this so, book was published in heaven. Yeah. Oh, well, well all of these works yeah. were published in heaven. <laughs> so the, the, prosec the prosecutor says, well, Your Honor, I'm not quite certain what this means, but may the court be recognized that this book was published in San Francisco. <laughs> so he felt that he had to get over that jurisdictional question. <laughs> jurisdictional question. And, but the other thing to kind of uh, consistent, and, and David alluded to this, he, all these expert witnesses, he never thought they would come in, right? Mm -hmm. He thought, as David said, you just make your case, you show you the dirty words, and you don't need any That's expert okay. witnesses. But Roth said, you know, to the extent that something has socially redeeming value, you have to establish that. So when Judge Horn uh, overruled the prosecutor, uh, that was a major thing. So they, they were outgunned, there's no doubt about that. But they also didn't think, and they had reason not to think, that, they would, that the expert witnesses would ever come in at all, or that they had to do anything more than bring in the poem in a brown bag and hand it to the, po uh, to the, to the judge mm -hmm. and say, page 12, page 14, what have you. After witnessing the nine extraordinary um, defense witnesses, one of whom was Kenneth Retroff, um, the prosecutor decided, well, I better have expert witnesses too. He brought two. One was an assistant professor of English, right? In comparison to the eminence the grise of the, you know, uh, of the defense uh, expert team, uh, this guy was, uh, was a nobody, right? And he gave, you know, he gave very, um, very unpersuasive uh, literary critique. I hope that you will read our book and you will hear about Gail Potter, who was the second witness. She ended up becoming, the second uh, pros uh, 
uh, witness for the state, she ended up becoming the comic relief of the trial. And Judge Horne couldn't, in fact, contain the, the, the laughter of the audience. He chided the audience for laughing. But she stood up, and when, when she was giving her, um, her you, have to, you have to establish why you are an expert witness. So she, when she was giving her credentials, she said, um, she, she claimed to have um, rewritten, to have spent many years rewriting every man. And what was the other book? I tried to remember it. Um, I mean, it was extraordinary. She basically takes, oh, yes, I think it was Faust or something. I, I rewrote Faust. You know, and, and, uh, you know, and, and people are doing exactly what you're doing. They're like, mouths are dropping. They're laughing. So she, she like, lost credibility right there. And then, and, and then um, she said, well, you know, such smut as this. I, I, I saw very little reason to continue reading it. Well, that's a disqualifier right there. An expert witness who didn't read the literature. Can you imagine that? So, uh, so the, you know, Ehrlich didn't even, didn't even cross-examine her because she had basically undermined any authority that she had. And, and, you know, when she said that it was so disgusting that she couldn't read the whole thing, remember, one of the tests was the work taken as a whole. So now yeah. you have one of the, yeah. the expert witnesses, witnesses, witnesses saying, yeah. this is so disgusting, I can't read it as a whole. We have time for one or two more questions, and we'll call it. Yes, yes sir. Well, first off, I still appreciate this, and I, I read Ehrlich's book many years ago. I, mm -hmm. I wanna, I'm a little unclear. A couple of questions, and then I just want to make a very brief remark. Um, first question, Roth was a, he, what press did he run? Was it Vanguard or what, what was it? I can't remember right now what the press that Sam Roth did. By, by the way, you did mention Ehrlich. Ehrlich did a quote-unquote published, a quote-unquote transcript of the trial. The only thing was he only included his testimony. Yes, yes, right? So when Bendick and Spicer were cross-examining people and what have you, that wasn't in his transcript. Okay. I read it 30, 40 years ago. I want one other question, and that is, where does Lady Chatterley's lover, that was mentioned earlier by another person, fit into all of this, or does it fit? It really doesn't. I mean, Roth is the, I mean, it, it's okay. weeks old, and, and it is, I mean, sure, there were other opinions, and there were some California opinions, but Roth really steals, you know, the, the day. This is the case that makes all of the difference. All right, my comment is this, and that is when I was a kid, um, I remember this, my parents talking about this trial. Mm -hmm. And they were very, they read very closely, uh, and they were very interested in what was going on in San Francisco. We lived in Fresno at the time, um, and um, they would come up to San Francisco and hang out in North Beach and go to some of the clubs. They were aware of the poetry scene, and, and they were very supportive of, of City Lights, and that was probably one of the first sort of things that I remember just hearing they were outraged about mm -hmm. it. And um, I think that now sitting in this room many years later and they're both gone i mean you know things move forward and i this is a really magnificent work and i want to thank you well thank you very much and i hope that uh, and thank you all for being here and we'll end with a question from a publisher so i, I really love what you did you focused on the lawyers and on the law mm -hmm. what about the public opinion what about the public well we have we have we have public opinion as filtered through the newspapers 
and 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 that's that's in the book. But well, actually, no, actually not, uh, not at the time. Remember, this was a new day. I mean, if it was, it wasn't formal, um, uh, and it was basically the ACLU and Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and and that was it. And so, you know. Anyway, uh, it's always a joy and an honor to be at this incredible bookstore. I hope we have an opportunity sometime in the future to return. And meantime, Thanks to copies are, are, are available. We're yes, happy we'll be happy to sign. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.